0: You're welcome to sing along. Okay, good. I want to make sure you're awake this morning. You know, just, just by uh, making sure that you guys know your culture, the singers of that song are Sonny and Cher. Now, that song came out in 1965, which some of you remember, and you're dating yourself a little bit by remembering that. Obviously, as some of you know my age, I was not around in 1965. And I don't think of these guys when I hear that song. I think of these guys. (laughs) And if you weren't around in the early 90s, this was one of the best movies of the early 90s uh, with Bill Murray and Andy McDowell. And, And the movie really has this kind of central element in it that is this thing right here. It's called a clock radio. Now, for those of you who are under a certain age, back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, these, these sat on our nightstands. We didn't use our phones for an alarm clock. We would, would set a time using dials And then you'd pick a radio station where other people pick the music, not you. I know it's crazy. Um, And then at the time you wanted to wake up, the radio station would go on and you'd wake up to hopefully a song that you like. And so in the movie Groundhog Day, every morning, day after day after day after day, Bill Murray keeps waking up and it's always Groundhog Day. And so every morning when it goes from 5.59 to 6, I Got You Babe comes on. Now, I, I did some research uh, this week, and I discovered that somebody has, has tracked how long Bill Murray was stuck in Groundhog Day. Now, I don't believe everything on the internet, um, but, but the, according to this one person, he's stuck on Groundhog Day for 34 years which I thought was just crazy. And if you know the movie, the storyline tracks Bill Murray kind of trying to make sense of his life stuck for 34 years on Groundhog Day. And at a certain point, he starts asking a really important question. And that question is this, what is the meaning of life? When you're stuck living the same day over over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, he goes, what's the meaning of all this? And the movie kind of chronicles his efforts to try to decipher that. And I don't know about you, but I've asked this question before, or five times, or a hundred times. It's a question that I think every single person has asked at one moment or another. It actually is the subject of an entire school of psychology known as logotherapy. And that, 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 that school was founded by this guy, Viktor Frankl. Um, I read a, I read hundred books in the last two years. This is like in the top five. Um, it's called Man's Search for Meaning. And Viktor Frankl talks about how humans make meaning of even the hardest situations. And in his book, he spends time with people who are in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And he spends time with people who are thinking of committing suicide, who are in mental health institutions. And he talks about how meaning is at the core of our lives. We are driven by a desire to find meaning in our lives. And that's really the heart of this series that we're starting today called Life Is. We're going to talk about the meaning of life. Some of you are in the middle of a great season of life. And so you'd finish the sentence, life is awesome or life is amazing, or life is perfect, or life is wonderful. Some of you would finish the sentence very differently. You'd say life stinks. Life's terrible. Life is frustrating. I went on Google and I typed in life is and let it just finish the sentence. That's why at the bottom right here it says life is a highway. Uh, because that's what Google told me. Um, I love that song from uh, Rascal Flats and from the movie Cars. But for you, life may be a highway that you're on. It's a journey that you're on. And the hardest part, for me at least, is when life is amazing and terrible at the same time. Like in one area, it's like the best it's ever been. And then something happens and it's like, ah, how can I be feeling these emotions at the same time? How can life be this exact same thing? How can one day include such joy And such pain. And thankfully, the Bible tells us the truth about that life. And so, over the next nine weeks this summer, we're gonna be in a book called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a a book at the heart of your Bible. And for many of you, I know that you haven't been in Ecclesiastes in a while. Maybe you've never read Ecclesiastes. And so, I wanna bring you up to speed. The word Ecclesiastes means the one who calls the assembly. And so Ecclesiastes is the opinion or the perspective of, of one particular person who will meet in a second. If you want to take notes, there's a place on your handout for this under the background section. Ecclesiastes is in the middle of the Bible. And in the middle of the Bible, we have what's called the wisdom books. These five books. Proverbs is a book that many of you read every month because it's written by a guy named Solomon and it includes just general principles about how life works, how to succeed in life. Psalms is a book about worship and it's the worship songs of the Hebrew people. It's a great reminder that, that we don't always worship and praise and sing even today from great places. 73 of the 150 Psalms are laments. They're from places of struggle and difficulty. Song of Solomon is a book also by Solomon, and it's a book about marriage and sex. He writes this at the beginning of his life. He writes Proverbs in the middle of his life. The book of Job, I am so glad, is in the Bible because it's been a great comfort for so many people who are wrestling with disappointment, especially when it feels like life is on top of you and you're just trying to get up and make sense of it. And then Ecclesiastes is kind of the opposite. It's, it's about disappointment when you're on top of life, when you have everything and it doesn't seem to matter and it doesn't protect you from disappointment. It's a really diverse book, Ecclesiastes. It's like a, a spice cabinet. It has tons of different elements. It's got some pessimism and some sarcasm and some cynicism. And so if that's your jam, this is your book. Um, it's got, it's got poetry, it's got irony, it's just filled with tons of great stuff. It's written by a guy named Solomon, who we know as the wisest man who ever lived. He was the wealthiest king of the people of Israel. He oversaw the greatest and largest Hebrew empire in history. And it was written at the end of his life, likely 935-ish B.C., And Ecclesiastes has a bit of a rep. It's got a bit of a reputation. And that's why some of you don't study it very much. Some of you go, it's just too negative, Scott. It's just too dark. It's just too bleh. Like, I like to be happy. I like to stay up here. And so you avoid Ecclesiastes. Some of you are in the middle of a hard time and you go, I don't want to read Ecclesiastes because it's just like being in my brain. You know, it's just all sorts of, of dark, difficult stuff. And some of you like life. To resolve like a sitcom, problem to solution in 22 minutes plus commercials, and Ecclesiastes isn't like that. It doesn't resolve that easy. It's like one of those movies that you leave and you go, "Huh? Where? where, How how can a movie end right there?" And and so that's one of the reasons I kind of like it because it's a little bit like life. Because life is not always nice and neat the way it resolves. Life is not always something that makes sense in the moment. And Ecclesiastes gives a voice to that. So this summer, we're going to walk through Ecclesiastes, these 12 chapters over nine weeks. And in your bulletin, when you walked in, we made a little bookmark for you. If you want to follow along with this series. So you know where we're headed. We'd encourage you to either read before you come or read after you're here. If you're watching online and you're in the area, we'd love to see you next Sunday to have you with us for this series. If you're going to travel and be on vacation, we'd encourage you to catch the live stream or catch our video archive after you miss a Sunday. This is going to be a great, great summer, and we're going to really dive in. Over the last few summers, we have really dove into some some passages of Scripture and kind of camped out for a while. Two summers ago, we did Galatians in a series called Jesus Plus Nothing. Last summer, we did a series called And about how to live faithful to Christ and winsome to culture out of Daniel and Esther. So we're going to be camping out in Ecclesiastes. And so if you're not a fan of Ecclesiastes, we'll see you in August. And so uh, let's pray. Um, I'm, I'm just kidding. Kind of. But if you jump into the first chapter today, here's the big idea, if you're following along your handout, that when you look to your life for meaning life is meaningless when you look to your life for meaning life is meaningless and as i said we're going to be in the book of ecclesiastes chapter one today so if you have a physical bible i'd encourage you to open that up to the middle you'll probably hit psalms or proverbs just go a little bit towards the back and you'll hit ecclesiastes if you've got a digital bible it's in the middle of your old testament section and uh And today I'm going to share with you what I'm calling three notes from Solomon's journal. Because I want to remind you that Solomon is sharing his perspective. And Solomon is not God, he's not Jesus. And in some times in this book, he's going to be working through his emotions and feelings. And so not everything in here is always 100% true because we're reading Solomon wrestle through with this. So some weeks in this, it's not going to resolve well because we're only reading that one chapter, okay? So, So you're going to have to stick with us for the whole book for this all to make sense. And these are Solomon's words, but we're going to try to give you a larger perspective even on his perspective. And so here in Ecclesiastes 1, this is what we read. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is why we believe it's Solomon, because this is Solomon's identity. Here's how he begins the book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Solomon's a really happy guy. The first note I want to show you from his journal is he says, all is vanity. Solomon is the wisest, wealthiest, most powerful most significant person on earth at that moment. Nothing has been outside of his grasp. And after experiencing all of this at the end of his life, his conclusion is everything is vanity. Now your Bible may have the word vanity here in verse two. It may have the word meaningless. The, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew and in Greek. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word is habel, which means vanity or Meaningless. The word habel had a a, a larger range of meaning. And what it means is, is something without real substance, something without real value, something without real permanence, significance, or meaning. Something insignificant, something that does not last. And I want to give you a preview. This is the word you're going to hear more than any other word in this book. The word habel appears 38 times in the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. That's three for every chapter if you're doing the math. It's a lot. You say, Scott, why is he so obsessed with this word? Because at the end of your life, you're wrestling with the gap between the life you thought you were gonna live and the life you've lived. At the end of your life, you're wrestling with how you thought it was gonna go and how it's gone. Some of you in this room are on the back side of the mountain and part of what you're wrestling with there. What was, that, what was that all about? All those things that I spent nights worrying about, not sleeping, what was that all about? All those things that I thought were really important then, now don't seem so important. And so Solomon is giving us a bit of a, of a word picture. He's saying life is habel. He's saying life You can't grab it, you can't hold on to it, you can't keep it, you can't point to it and say it's there, because when you point to it and say it's there, it's gone. And he's saying, if you look to your life for ultimate meaning and significance, what you are going to find is Habel. This is what keeps us up at night. This is the reason that we avoid silence and stillness. This is the thing we think about when we finally rest. This is the thing we think about when it's all said and done and we go, what was that all for? What was that all about? This is the reason that I'm so glad Ecclesiastes is in the Bible. Because there are so many of us that have lived through seasons of this kind of fog. This kind of doubt, this kind of cynicism, this kind of pessimism, this kind of feeling like nothing matters, nothing is significant, nothing is important, nothing we did really counted. Now, I know you may not have thought church was going to be about this today. Or maybe you were thinking about it and you said, Scott, I didn't need to come and be reminded of that. But if you haven't been here, you will be here. And if you're not here, you will one day be here like Solomon, I want to be able to help you make sense of this. Because Solomon is speaking to us from the most powerful, significant throne in his day. He has more money than you have. He most certainly has more wives than you have, which may or may not be a good thing. (sighs) The idea of 300 wives just gives me a cold sweat. Um... He is wiser than you are, which makes the wife part not make sense to me. (laughs) This is what happens when you preach without notes. You just say what comes into your mind. And with everything he's seen and experienced, he's saying to you, if you look for meaning in those things, if you look for fulfillment in those things, if you look for those things to satisfy your soul, you're going to find it to be vanity. You're going to find it to be meaningless. Thank God that's only verse (laughs) 2. And there's other places that he goes. Let's keep going in verse 3. It says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Solomon says the sun rises and the sun goes down And then it hastens to the place where it rises The the wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north Around and around goes the wind And on its circuits the wind returns All streams run to the sea But the sea is not full To the place where the streams flow There they flow again All things are full of weariness And a man cannot utter it the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done again. And there is nothing new under the sun, which is where that classic phrase comes from. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The second note I wanna share with you from Solomon's journal is that life feels confusing and fleeting. All of us are kind of nodding our head as we're listening to Solomon. We're going, we, we have days where it feels like everything we did didn't last we've all had days where it feels like everything is just the same thing over and over again you've had days that felt like you were living groundhog day you woke up and it was as if the music was playing again you've had moments where you said is there anything new here or is this all there is this is why i think that um truly into Vision really spe- says spells it out well when he says none of us crave meaningless And all of us fear nothingness and emptiness more than anything else. I don't know all of you. I don't know all of you watching online, but I can promise this. None of you crave meaningless. None of you say, I want to live a meaningless life. I want to have a meaningless existence. Just give me that, Scott. No, And most of us, many of us are deathly afraid of nothingness and emptiness. That thing inside here that you stay busy so you don't feel. I know it's super common today to make fun of the way that we live in relationship to our phones, you know, there's, there was a series of images that came out. I think it was last year. There are pictures of people and they just Photoshopped the phone out, you know? And it was them just kind of holding their hands like this. And we, you, you go to a restaurant and you kind of look over at a couple and they're both on their phones or a family, they're all on their phones. And we kind of all like just kind of judge them silently, you know, sometimes not so silently um, for doing that. Or, or you're in a room and everybody else has their phone or you get in an elevator. I was in an elevator last week and uh, I got in and everybody was on their phone. So what did I do? I got on my phone too, you know? (laughs) The problem isn't the phone. We don't have a phone problem. We have a fear problem. We have a fear problem that we're afraid of that feeling of nothingness and emptiness. We're afraid that when all is said and done, there's not going to be anything left of our life we're afraid that when all's said and done nobody's going to remember us nobody's going to remember what we did this is the reason why i think most of us never ever visit a graveyard did you know memorial day started in graveyards in the 1860s following the civil war it was actually called decoration day in communities that had been rocked by tens of thousands of men being killed in the civil war you would go to the graveyard to decorate the graves of those young men with flowers and flags and over a hundred years decoration day happened as you went to and remembered that sacrifice and being in a graveyard you had to reckon with the reality of death but most of us if given the choice do our best to avoid funerals if we have to go to a funeral we for sure don't go to the graveside and most of us never think about even visiting one of these places because it's a reminder we don't want to face. And yet a couple years ago, I was scrolling through, I think it was Twitter and somebody had posted a quote and I just, it grabbed my attention. I would say it arrested my heart. See, Anne Lamont says, a hundred years from now, all new people. 100 years from now, if this space is still here, including me, all new people, 100 years from now, will any of us be remembered? I mean, think about it. 100 years from now, in the past, 1919, how many of you know anything about the people in your life who were alive? Grandparents, great-grandparents? Do you know their names? Do you know what they worked? Do you know what they cared about? What kind of people they were? you know what they did? What they made? Most of us don't. Well, if that's true for us, about them, what does that mean for you and me? See, life feels extremely confusing and fleeting when we actually face this stuff. And you go, Scott, I don't like how you're making me feel right now. Just pull your phone out. You'll feel better in a second. (laughs) But that's what we do. We numb these places and we ignore them until life forces us to face them. Until you're sitting there next to somebody in the ER and you're not sure they're going to go home. Until you're standing there next to the grave because an aneurysm or a heart attack or a stroke took them before you could have that conversation. Until you're sitting at home for the first day in 40 years because you finally retired and now there's quiet in your life. And you go, who am I without that job? Until that person walks in and says, I want a divorce. And you realize that you've been finding your work and your meaning or significance in a job that is fleeting while the people who are most important to you get the sloppy seconds. See what Solomon is saying to us at the end of his life is he's saying, guys, life is incredibly fragile. And if you are looking to your life for meaning, life feels meaningless. If you're looking to your life and trying to suck meaning out of your temporal life here, your job or your relationships, if you're looking for those to satisfy the emptiness in your soul, you will continue to find yourself dissatisfied. This is why that song from U2 has lasted so well. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And if you go, well, I'm just going to pour myself into my family. Your family cannot satisfy that hole. If you're looking to your spouse to give you eternal lasting peace, you are going to crush your spouse. Your spouse can't handle the weight of that. Your kids can't handle the weight of that. You're looking to fill something only God can fill with a person. And what Solomon is saying to you is if you look to your life, whatever part of it is for meaning, you're going to find life to feel really meaningless. And then he closes out this section of his journal with a discussion about his experience. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek out and search by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And I have seen everything that is done under the sun. Pay attention to that phrase. We'll come back to it. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said it to my heart. I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is a striving after the wind. See, Solomon's third lesson for us, his note, is that wisdom is not protection from disappointment. Wisdom doesn't protect us from being disappointed. See, the story of Solomon is, he's the son of King David, who was the second king of a united Israel and Judah. And Solomon, as a very young king, has an encounter with God that God gives him uh, an opportunity. He says, Solomon, ask for me anything, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon thinks about that opportunity. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, this is what he says to God. He says, and now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in the place of David my father And although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. He's completely overwhelmed. If you remember the first time you became a parent or the first time you had a significant promotion at work and you walked in one day and you go, man, everybody here thinks I know what I'm doing, but I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, I'm in way over my head. Uh, I don't know what I don't know. And so he says to God, your servant is in the midst of a people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. So give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. If you go on and read the rest of First Kings 3, what you find is that God is so honored by Solomon's request To be given wisdom, he says, I will make you the wisest man that's ever lived. And because you didn't ask for great wealth or a long life or or great power, I'm going to give you all of those things too. So Solomon experiences everything. Like I said earlier, there's nothing that Solomon could have that he didn't get. And in the book over and over again, he talks about life under the sun. We live in Arizona, we can relate to that. Sometimes that sun feels real hot real oppressive. And throughout his book, I think it's 26 or 28 times, he refers to this life under the sun again and again. And what he says is, I've experienced it all. I've studied it all. I have understood it all. And under the sun, life feels meaningless and wisdom doesn't protect me from the same disappointment that you've experienced. And this is where Solomon gives us a little bit of a hint at a a message. He's going to flesh out in later chapters. And so you don't go home depressed and not wanting to come back for the next eight weeks. I'm gonna give you a little bit of a hint of where we're headed in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon is kind of giving us a little bit of a spoiler here. What he's saying is that we don't pull meaning from life. We receive meaning from God. We don't pull meaning from life. We receive it from God. This is why I believe, and Solomon is gonna tell us that work actually matters. You know that there was work in the garden before we fell? And there's gonna be work in heaven? Now, it's not gonna be like the work you have now because you're gonna have a much better boss in heaven than the boss you have right now. But there is value to many of the things that we struggle with in life. The problem is, is we're looking for the right thing in the wrong place. We're looking for meaning from those things when instead God wants to infuse those things with meaning and allow us to receive it. There's meaning to be found in your work, but it's not from you pulling it from your work. It's from you receiving it from God and infusing it into your work. There there is meaning to be found in your marriage, but it's not from you pulling it out of your spouse It's from you receiving it from God and pouring it into your spouse. There's meaning to be found even on a weekend like this. But it's not to be found in the activities you're going to do. It's found from God in the midst of the activities. Are you tracking with me here? See, what what he's saying here is that you're looking to the material life under the sun for what can only come from the creator of the sun. And this is the problem that we're looking to the creation of God for what God can only give. And this series is going to be about us talking about all of life, our work, our relationships, our families, eternal things, and saying in all of those places, are we living them from a earthly, under the sun perspective, or are we looking at them from an eternal perspective, Are we looking to those things to fill us with meaning and fulfillment? Or are we looking to God to give us meaning and fulfillment in the midst of those things? And what Solomon does really clearly, he says, is if you're going to look to things under the sun, the things of this world to satisfy your soul, you're going to be cynical, pessimistic, angry, and bitter. Even if you go to church. Because even church is not protection from cynicism. I'm living testimony of that. Because I had an experience that reminded me this week of Bill Murray's. You know, Bill Murray got a gift in this movie. He didn't think of it as a gift. By the middle of the movie, he's literally trying to take his own life. He's so overwhelmed with despair. But at the beginning of the movie, if you remember this movie, Bill Murray is a bad dude. Like nobody likes him. He doesn't even like himself. And it takes an experience he would have never asked for, for him to become the kind of character at the end that we're all cheering for. He got a gift. He got an opportunity. And sometimes disappointment, disillusionment, and the loss of the things you cared about most are the very gift you've been looking for because it opens you up and causes you to look at life in a different way. In my early season as a a pastor, I wasn't officially a pastor yet, I was working for a church, I went through a profound experience of disillusionment, and cynicism, and anger, and bitterness. I've I've recently found some of those sermons that I preached back then, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is all about what was broken and what's wrong, and and I was the kind of person who nitpicked everything, because I was frustrated at, at what was. And it wasn't until I went through that cynicism and that disillusionment, that I could come today to be a person that I think really understands and values hope. Because before I just had idealism, which was based upon this much life experience. And I have this much now, I mean, it's not a lot more, (laughs) but it's the context of reality now and it's hope. And for some of you, you may not have asked for it, but you're in the middle of the, the movie Groundhog Day. Life has disillusioned you, life has frustrated you, life has disappointed you, life has discouraged you. And you could look at that as a curse or you could look at it as a gift that you are being disabused and removed of all those false views. You've learned all the places that won't satisfy your soul. And God is inviting you into a journey. God is inviting you down a highway He's inviting you onto an adventure to figure out what life truly is all about. And he's reminding you that when you look to your life for meaning, life is meaningless. But he's reminding you, hey, by the way, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, tap on the shoulder. I want to bring meaning to you in a way that thing can't match, can't touch. If you'll stop looking there and you'll start looking here. So as we conclude today, I've got a couple next steps for you on the back of your handout. And the first one is this. I want to encourage you to pick three to five words today that you could enter in the blank, life is what? If you were honest about where you are today, not yesterday, not next week, but today, how you're feeling, what's really the truth, what's going on in your heart, how would you finish the sentence, life is blank? And I would say finish that sentence even right now, even before you leave this room today. How would you finish that sentence? Number two, I'd encourage you to identify the fears and the feelings which are strongest in your life today. Now, I know that your temptation this week, whatever your preferred numbing device of choices, and let's be honest, all of us judge people who numb in different ways than we do. But we all have something that we turn to to make that go away. But what are those fears and feelings that are strong in you and how can you identify them because it's in that place that God's gonna begin to do his greatest work. And then number three, I wanna invite you to commit to read through Ecclesiastes this summer and ask God to speak to you in the middle. Of those fears and feelings in the middle of that cynicism in the middle of that disillusionment in the middle of that disappointment in the middle of that disorienting and say god this is not where i wanted to be or planned on being but this is not a surprise to you He me just remind you god's not surprised that you feel this way god isn't surprised that you are where you are right now and it may not be where you wanted to be but this is the exact place that you can have the encounter with God that your heart and soul have been looking for. What do you want more, God, or a good feeling? Do you want to feel better, or do you want to encounter Jesus? That'll determine where your life goes. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for Ecclesiastes. It is a hard book, Jesus. And leaning into this is not easy. It takes tremendous courage and fortitude and perseverance. But God, I believe that this book is in your word because you inspired it, A, and because B, we need it. God, I believe there are many of us in this room today that are either living in or headed into an experience which will disillusion us, which will disorient us, which will shake us up. And Solomon's journal here in Ecclesiastes gives us the ability and the reminder that you wanna hear those things from our heart. You want us to speak those to you, even as Solomon did. You want us to to bring those to your feet. You want us to talk to you about those. And so today, God, I pray that this would begin an honest conversation with you about where our life really is. I pray that we'd look at what we're really doing and the places that we're looking to fulfill our hearts to satisfy those longings to find meaning and like you did with Solomon at the end of his life I pray that there would be these moments of clarity these encounters with you God I pray the desire of our heart wouldn't be just to feel good that it would be you and so even if the encounter we want with you comes in the place that we didn't want to go, God. I pray that we would want you more than we want to feel good. I pray that we would want you more than we want things to be easy. And I pray that you would use even a circumstance that we didn't see coming to lead us deeper into this place with you deeper into the future that you have for us and deeper into the person you made us to be. So meet us in this place, Jesus, and do what only you can do. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com